Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a small business owner. Previously, I coulda, woulda, shoulda, but now I'm a gonna. I'm always looking for fun. I'm a pretty bad improv artist, a bit manic, and always looking for something new and interesting to entertain me. I'm a TV host and your host right now for what we call the Second Scene Podcast, a dweebs global production where we interview people you know about things that they're not necessarily known for. I'm here today with Dan Chan, whose first scene was as a pre-IPO PayPal employee, cashing in some of his stock options, letting the rest go to follow his true dream and second, third, and fourth scenes as a professional magician, performing around the world, entertaining everyone from the elites of Silicon Valley, world leaders, celebrities, and more. So welcome, Dan. Thanks, Michael, for having me. Did that, was that a good summary of, of who you are? Absolutely. <laughs> what, was, uh, what was working for PayPal pre-IPO days like? I think it's really important to spot trends. And when they were doing that referral bonus back in the day, when they were giving you $5 to refer a friend, we were just spamming everyone, I think, right? So I, I knew that it was going to take off. It was, you know, Google and uh, Google and PayPal and all these other companies back in the day. And it was just interesting because I did not know my good friend, Ken Howery, would end up working for the, um, as an ambassador, I think, to Sweden now. I didn't know that uh, Levishin would end up setting up so many companies like Affirm and Slide and all those other companies. And I was just in my own little oblivious magic world. I didn't build that network that ended up becoming that PayPal mafia that's so <laughs> that's been featured in Fast Company and so many other co companies. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, I was in my own world and I wish I wasn't there because then I could have caught back on those networks. Gotcha. And now well, I'm just like knocking and they're not answering the door. <laughs> no, they're not like, who's Dan Chan? We don't remember him over at PayPal. What did, what did you do at PayPal? Uh, I was in customer service first and I quickly went into finance. So when I went into finance, I was doing the deposits. Back in the day, we would do this verification thing with the bank and they would put money in your bank account. And then these silly people would think that they'd have to pay it back. So they would send envelopes back to our uh, office and I would have to credit their account then manually go to the bank and deposit like sometimes coins or checks for like 14 cents. That's what I was going to say. It would usually be like a four cent deposit and like a two cent deposit. That's funny. They, they thought they, they would mail it back to you. <laughs> so I, I ended up not doing real finance. I ended up being more like a glorified bank teller at PayPal. And I would do reconciliations and these really boring things, not like financial deals or M I, I imagine finance as mergers and acquisitions or looking at high level financial statements or making a difference. I didn't realize that you have to go through this grunt work and prove yourself street cred wise in terms of doing the boring stuff. So I ended up hightailing it out of there um, pretty soon after, like okay. after 13 months, I vested 13 months. I guess that treated you pretty well. Honestly, I sold my stock really soon afterwards because I heard about Russian mobsters and fraud and we, we'd say, here's, here's our burn rate. Because in these companies, it's a race against time. It's race against the next round of funding. So, so I ended up selling most of my stock in, and buying Disney, which I look back on my portfolio and I made 600% returns on Disney, but that looks good. But certain stocks I've had recently, like Square and Neo had 600% returns in like a year, year or three. 
or, right. or so like I, I have neo and I have other things and I it, I did okay but I did I think it's more about pitching media about the story that I was pre PayPal pre IPO PayPal I did see Elon Musk I did see Peter Thiel in the offices I think they might have even seen me perform a little bit of magic but that was when I kind of sucked at magic so <laughs> <laughs> yeah Tesla Tesla's done well for me stock wise Neo is essentially that's I, I I've done well with that I'm not exactly their their car manufacturer are similar to Tesla in China right Yes, that's correct. Okay, yeah, that's done very well for me as well. I got I lucked into that one. I love technology, so I'm so like Elon Musk, and I have my my Tesla Model Three and all of that. But I, I can't let you gloss over the Russian mafia comment. What was, what was it with the Russian mafia and PayPal? Like we'd hear these reports about people funneling things from certain accounts, and I kind of <laughs> I was a vigilante back then. Uh, the statute of limitations are probably expired and I don't think anyone's going to chase me for this, but I never talked about it back then, but I would, first on this show right here, <laughs> uh, I would actually lock accounts of guys that we were, we knew they were fraudsters, but we the federal law said we had to do something or like let them go with away from the money. So I actually clicked locked on those accounts. <laughs> So they couldn't take their money out. They call customer service and they'd come probably back around and they got their money back. Uh, but they were, they were fraudsters and we knew that they were fraudsters, but we're, our hands were tied. Oh, wow. So they would so be using PayPal to... No, they would... The scam was they would sell something on eBay. The money would go into like a $10,000 or $100,000 account and they'd funnel everything in. They would maybe try to ship a phone or something that they'd never deliver. So we would see this pattern and it was just clear. Everything funneling to that account was a fraudster, but we couldn't prove it was a fraudster. So that they were saying, hey, you can't lock this account. And at that time, I think PayPal was paying for it. Okay. Wow. I mean, people are still using eBay and PayPal for... No, we don't have any of that. That, that was long gone. Yeah. But um, I mean, like, it was just this weird thing that uh, people were doing. It's just gotcha. like, a, a, it, it was just... A mess, but they, they sorted everything out, and um, you know they they finally you know like they figured out how to um, you know deal with the fraudsters, and that's why these guys were so successful afterwards. But I, I just saw some of it behind the scenes, so I dumped my stock pretty soon afterwards. Gotcha. I mean, any new technology, uh, it's immediately jumped on by fraudsters and by the criminal element trying to figure out how they can take advantage of it. Yeah. People don't realize PayPal's been around a long time, and back when PayPal and eBay first started, it was kind of the wild west. It really was the people selling stuff from the garage and really the small time people. It's, it's, it's not really that anymore. Unfortunately, things have changed, but people, I, I don't think people using it now knows, know exactly where it came from and how unique it really was and how yeah. unique PayPal was as a payment system. I don't think there were really many other payment systems out at the time. Yeah, it was, well, they had a good vision, especially in the beginning, the story, they really knew how to pitch media. And that's one thing that I learned from that was the stories that they told behind the scenes and the uh, stories they told themselves, because we had these, um, shirts that said like something like one world currency or something. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, I, I think it was almost the genesis of Bitcoin. I wouldn't be surprised if some people who were in those offices ended up founding Bitcoin because it just sounded like that narrative. It sounded exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking when you said it. Yeah. Um, very cultish. <laughs> yeah. You had to drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> <And I realized, laughs> uh, so you left you left PayPal and you immediately knew you wanted to be a magician. Was this something you knew as a kid? Was this something you had always followed? I just realized I could see a path 
to the greats. Because I would go to these conventions and there you are hanging out with Penn and Teller and David Copperfield, or you'd see them and you'd go to that place and you're like, I see what he's doing. I think I can do that. Most people, most people don't say that. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's like, what makes you different. Lucky. That like you saw that and you were like, I can do that. <laughs> you have to, in order to visualize success, you have to visualize and believe that you can do that. And I said, in 20 years, I could be the leader of my industry. I mean, everything has pivoted to Zoom, but I knew that one day I'd have my day if I could continue to work at it, because I would study from the guys who built up these guys their consultants. I knew who their behind the scenes guys were like Chris Kenner. So whenever you formulate success, you have to reverse engineer success. So when my son was born, I knew I was going to teach him how to juggle because I said to him, I said to myself, you're going to learn how to pitch or street perform because that's where I got my start. You have to look at your mentors and where they got their start and replicate it. So I said, if he walks up to someone and says, would you like to see a magic trick? And he's five years old, no matter how cute or no matter how skilled you, you may or no, may not know, you're going to say no. But if he was juggling five balls and three flaming torches, you're probably going to say yes right after he puts down his torches and say, would you like to see a magic? You're going to say yes. And that's what I did for him. He was making $120 by the ten, in two hours by the age of six, street performing. Well, that was like his he, first time. He now? He's 12. Okay. And what's he, where, where is he performing at this point? He's performing on Zoom shows. Uh, he just booked his first Allbirds, which is a uh, unicorn, unicorn company. They hired him for their corporate event of adults only. He also did Walmart, take your kids to work day, uh, where it was like him only. I, they did not hire me. They didn't want to spend the thousand dollars to have me at their event. So they're just like, hey, we're going to have your son at 200 to $250 to do a Zoom show. Yeah, wow. which is kind of ridiculous for a billion dollar valuation company not to spend a thousand dollars on me but uh, <laughs> we, all, we all have a line we all have a line we draw with our our spending limits <laughs> yeah yeah so that's kind of interesting but um yeah so when so when you saw them and you were like i can do that had you ever done magic before or did you just pick up a magic book and start playing with cards I was probably like you and many of the other people, maybe one step ahead. I, I'd have, I could do these one-handed cuts and I could spring the cards from hand to hand. But that was just from imitation and looking at people. Mm -hmm. I bought magic books at Barnes and Noble, but I probably only had like five magic books as a kid. But I would look at them and it would be like any kid and study them. And then I would watch David Copperfield on television mm -hmm. and I would rewind and try to slow motion. And I think everyone does that on YouTube. I try to reverse engineer it, but I didn't think much about it. I didn't say I was going to be a magician. I just said, this is kind of interesting. This is a cool puzzle to crack. <laughs> it's like a puzzle. Doctor, no, I, did, I did the same thing. I actually, I did magic as a kid. I just never, I never went anywhere with it. I did kids, I did magic shows when I was like 13 for parties. Uh, but I was never very good at the sleight of hand. But I, I remember watching David Copperfield turn a uh, $100 bill into a $1 bill. And I remember pausing like my VHS player and figuring out how he did it and then going around and <laughs> trying to take all the money from the parents. <laughs> and we'd have our relatives over. Like, Give me a hundred, I'll turn it into a one. <laughs> so where did, so after you left, so as a kid, you kind of dabbled in it, but it wasn't serious. But then when you left uh, PayPal, were you immediately booking gigs? 
I was taking some time off. Like mm -hmm. uh, I would schedule a dental appointment and like just go do a gig whenever there was a profitable event. I would just, you know, use my sick days and it just kind of got owed. You know, you, every business needs a runway and I was already taking off. I already had enough flights, you know, to, uh, flight time that I knew that I wasn't going to be rich off of it, but this is what I wanted to do. So it, it was at that point in time where let's do five silly kids event, make 250 an hour or eight of them. Like you just do the math at it. If I could do eight shows at 250, I've made a hundred thousand a year and I have two weekends off. And I said, there's enough schools and birthday parties and events. And at that point, that was just like what everyone was charging about $250 a show for a kid's show. I mean, people don't factor in the fact that you're marketing all the time. You are driving one hour, showing up half an hour, an hour early and then driving back home one hour. So that won't, what you, what you're telling yourself is a $250 gig is actually like more like 40 or $70 an hour after you figure out all the other things that you're doing involved in it. It, it really is a crazy thing to do. Oh yeah. And then, I mean, just the setup and takedown of the tricks. I mean, I, you, I, just even that is a lot of, is very time consuming. Uh, and, and talking about setup of the tricks, I did, I specialized in close up and I, I did a lot of juggling because it was more visual. I didn't have to do like illu big illusions, but in this home studio that you see me in now, I actually do a levitation daily and I could not do that because of the technical setup. So the value that I'm driving to my new clients is a new business paradigm because certain things I would have to charge like $2,500 for, for, to levitate for literally 15 seconds. People always say no to it because unless you're a billionaire, you're not going to want that. But now I'm doing that daily. And that one investment, that, that one illusion that probably cost me 12 or $1,300 that I only used three times, I ended up using it almost every single day of the pandemic once I started performing it. Oh, interesting. And that forward thinking, realizing that that was a great levitation really propelled me. It, I wasn't chasing the money in it and people thought I was stupid. My, my mom's like, why are you buying this stupid you know, thing that you, it, it's just, I was so passionate about it. I wanted to, I wanted to be there. I got you. It's pretty neat that you've, you've taken the situation you're in and you've made it work for you. I, a lot of people are having a lot of trouble doing that, especially when it's such a visual thing that you're doing and it's such a where you're in person touching people yeah well it was that or get a minimum wage job so i started pitching cnbc uh, i'm going to share that in the um and in that first article i ended up talking about my failure about like losing 8k in one week <laughs> literally everyone was canceling and i was stressed and then i just said let me get some media. And then I got the two business insider articles, but understanding the power of media and understanding that's how David Blaine and David Copperfield got big was through media. And once you understand that power and you start pursuing it every day, for me, I was like certain days. I actually remember waking up at 5.00 AM, not taking any naps and going until 2.00 AM at the pandemic. That's how hard I pushed. Well, well, between practicing, putting together videos. No, it was not practicing. It was getting my act to the level that I knew that people would start charging, uh, would start paying thousands of dollars for again, because I literally started street performing again at $50 or like, I would just say, Hey, to friends on Facebook, would you like to see a new trick I'm working on? 
and I went from that street performance, but I realized that I needed to be a first mover advantage because there's certain, especially where I wanted to position myself and knowing my personality, I want to get things out there in front of people versus, you know, perfecting something and not realizing there's a market for, for it, just slowly ramping that up. Gotcha. And that was very interesting. And that was so stressful. I'm still <laughs> traumatized by, <laughs> by the pandemic because I, I really didn't know what was going to happen. We all and that's are. What, that's what was so interesting to the media because when I was telling these reporters of how scared I was, they felt they sensed it and they thought that that was a newsworthy story. So what are you doing? So you're performing every day. Who are you performing for and how is that bringing in money? Um, Google has hired me twice in one day, twice, four times <laughs> within the last few months. Actually, um, two, two, two Google days happened. I've performed for um, Netflix and LinkedIn and a whole bunch of um, clients. 150 plus performances since March on Zoom. Wow. And I did six live events. So my business model has flipped. I've never done a Zoom event before March. And now I'm doing all Zoom events. And I'm preparing for people in Os Oslo, Norway, Singapore, Canada, and they're coming to see me perform both on Eventbrite, Airbnb, but mainly 95% of what I do is corporate work. Okay. Gotcha. What, uh, do you have a favorite trick that you enjoy performing the most? It's I'm prolific. I'm, I'm like one of the guys I've stuffed myself in a six foot tall by six foot wide balloon, which isn't magic, but I'll do anything. I'm, I'm, I would do anything for attention. I'm an attention whore. <laughs> I juggle three flaming torches, five balls. I will pick pockets. Like this is my son picking pockets on the streets of San Francisco. I taught him how to do that early on. But my favorite trick was getting <laughs> out of the- You taught your son how to pick pockets. That's great. That's, and he's, yes. good. He's, he's really good at it. Uh, to be honest, he's not really good at it. He was success. That was a real pickpocketing segment. If you just search James Chan Street Hustler on YouTube, this video will come up. We practiced probably 10 hours or 20 hours of pickpocketing. He, I, we put a watch on my wrist and he just kept on taking the watch on and off my wrist for like many hours. Then I put it, uh, we wrapped um, a stick with a towel around it with a watch around it. I said, here's how you do it with one hand. Just do this with one hand. And he would just continue to do it. And then I taught, well, actually that, that one wasn't, that was actually a wallet steal, the, the one that I featured. So he knows how to do watches. He's, I don't think he's done a watch yet, but he actually stole the guy's wallet in this one video and he gave it back to him. But the way that you teach this is you impress them with magic first. And you say, hey, any chance I could show you some magic? And once they know you're a magician and not a, a street hustler, you, I said to him, any chance we could try something new on you? I don't know if it's going to work. And But I do have this business card and this is going to get you something that pro that's probably worth 10 or 20, uh, $100 or $200 after the trick, you're going to cash it in. So that sets in the mind that if he catches you, he's not going to punch the hell out of you. <laughs> he's not going to like, you're not going to end up with a black eye. Have you ever come close to it? Have you ever come close to getting the black eye? <laughs> I've had instances where I stole so many items at a banquet that I gave them all back. And one guy didn't come to claim it because they didn't realize that I picked their pocket. I was so good that he was laughing at everyone. I gave it back to the, um, 
the not the lost and found but the reception desk where they check in mm-hmm. only weeks afterwards did he realize that it, and he got it back from them but i was like no one's claiming this watch did they leave early no <laughs> oops <laughs> and then i started realizing and it was just in my mind i said if one watch gets this reaction imagine what three or four watches so i just started thinking that someone's going to claim their watch. I never stole that many items that, that, that I have to keep track, keep track. I usually would have one person. Oh, I'm going to give it back to that one person. So that that's kind of funny. You, you got a little game going on with yourself there. <laughs> yeah. You trick You're going so fast. You don't realize uh, how fast you're going and how you misdirected yourself. What's the, what's the most dangerous act you've ever performed? Several. <laughs> one is pulling a thread out of my stomach. There's some risk to that. Um, I, I did it only because I saw David Blaine do it, and I, I knew that I, I, someone, one of my friends tipped how it worked, and it, it is actually da- kind of dangerous. Uh-huh. Um, there's no fake skin or anything. I'm not going to explain how it works, but um, it's very interesting. A- after the, we finish recording, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the backstory behind that. Okay. Uh, what about, um, have you ever been injured? Oh yeah. Uh, I used to uh, more as a juggler. So I had this one effect where I had a letter opener in my mouth that was modified with duct tape. And we had, I had this, uh, circus performer make it, there was a divot in it. And then I put a sword here and it was a fake sword. So I'd balance this like this, right? Mm-hmm. Like in this, uh, and then I let go. But one time I let go this thing fell off because it really is a balance. There's no magnet or anything. And you're literally going under it. So I let go. This sword is not sharp. This is just like a round thing, but this is a letter opener. So I reach in and I do this to try to catch this falling sword. And my hell hand is bleeding as I'm doing the show. And I, I'm so stupid. I ended up not canceling the show. I just did three or four more tricks and I just literally did the rest of the show with uh, a napkin around my hand or like just trying to, and, and all my props got, you know, some of my props, the next couple of props got bloody. Oh, right. And, and that is the mentality of performers thinking the show must go on. If I was smarter, I would have just slowed down and said, Hey, you're hurt. Let's take care of this and forget about that. That's how stubborn I was back in right. the day. And when you're that stubborn, you're going to succeed. Oh, you were dedicated. You were dedicated to it. Yeah. Uh, so that was good. My next question was: Has anything gone completely wrong? Sounds like that went completely wrong. I've dropped doves at competitions because I didn't practice enough, and I balanced this rose on my nose like this. I, I think the thing is, I I, I shouldn't trust my own balance. <laughs> <laughs> I balanced something on my uh, nose. It was a rose. I dropped it when I picked it up off the ground. Uh, the the dove fell out. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I, don't want, I mean, if you're gonna do five thousand shows, you're gonna have to suck, and you want to get that sucking out of the way way in the beginning. It's a Silicon Valley model: fail and fail fast. But hopefully, practice enough and slow down enough that you don't fail. Yeah, well, as I said in my intro, I'm a terrible improv artist, but I keep trying. So I have I've had those few days that felt so good. So I'm gonna keep going with it. But uh, I would love to do improv drills with you after this is over. I, yeah. I've in Clown Conservatory, that's one of the biggest things that I learned. And that's why I feel like I'm a, a decent magician when things go wrong, is I don't have that deer in headlights look where you look paralyzed when you fail. Because the audience feels for you. When you 
are in this awkward situation. The reason I think we laugh is because we have all this tension built up and we don't know where to let it go. So you, you just don't relax or breathe. You laugh it out. I, I, that's my theory on comedy. That's one of my theories on comedy. It's, it's, uh, I, I like that theory. It sounds about right. But do you miss performing in front of people? Do you miss that feedback that... To be honest, I've given up my whole life to perform in front of people. Like I've done 5,000 plus shows. I don't mind if the rest of them are all on Zoom. I plan on like making multi, I'm planning on 10Xing or hopefully eventually 10Xing what I'm doing live just so that I just stay on Zoom because I could just reach here and I can do an effect for you. I can literally do a better show on Zoom than I can do live unless I had a theater where people came to see me because the setting up and doing stuff in order to do a really good fast paced show requires a lot of setup. Mm -hmm. But when it's all here laid out, literally I could, the, the benefits of a zoom show are so overwhelming. A small trick plays big. I could, I don't have to be eating out anymore. My son can do five minutes with me and build his brand and then go right back to playing video games and going back to school. I remember the logistics of flying to Germany and it might sound great and glamorous, but, and it was glamorous and fun, but it was, that's good for someone who's young. I remember going to Japan four times and Shanghai performing for billionaires, but I don't know if I'd really miss that because I've already done that, you know? That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. I think, uh, yeah, a lot of performers like they miss the audience and stuff, but it sounds like you're getting that even through Zoom. So I have to unmute specific people and I have to have, I, I, there's a new challenge because I am, I am the pioneer of Zoom shows, both by Hustle and Business Insider, but there's some, there's challenges that I realize that I'm figuring out that most magicians are start, I'm going to, I'm the market leader and they're copying me. There's so many challenges. I enjoy the challenges and because it's so difficult, I believe I'm going to be the number one leader on Zoom. I'm going to be the one of those guys. I mean, you've already, with all the media you see, but I'm going to actually, my goal is to get in Business Week and Wired and many of these other publications. And I'm so determined to get there. If it's not going to happen this time, it's going to happen some other time. And if I'm doing a live show, I'm going to be compared to David Copperfield or any of the contemporaries. With me on Zoom, they're going to, I'm going to be that standard. <laughs> or, or at least this handful of 10 people that I'm competing with. Everyone else ha have been doing, people have been doing live shows before I was in diapers. But who can say that they've been doing an interactive two-way show? We've done television. David Blaine's done television. Copperfield's done television. But they never said to you, directly to you, what's been happening. There's no point in time where I could perform for a thousand people, pull them out of their seats, and if they're a bad spectator, throw them back out or mute them or kick them out of a room. Think about that. If you start thinking about the positives behind that, you get super excited. Like someone heckles you, you hit the mute button. And that to me is the media angle. And that's why I feel like I'm getting this press and I'm getting all this stuff is people are seeing that market leadership that I'm providing. So what's your, I know you've gone through different name iterations. Are you Dan, Dan Chan, the Zoom man, or what's the, what's the one you're going to? It's not as catchy. Mm -hmm. So I first started off as Dan Chan, the balloon man, really pivoted to Dan Chan, the magic man, which 
has the rhyme and alliteration and rhymes and alliteration in marketing are very hypnotic. So think about that. Then Dan Chan, Master Magician, which was more of a positioning tool for dollars. It wasn't as memorable, but I would get higher dollar amounts. Then I went to Dan Chan, Billionaire's Magician because I was performing for guys who are founders of Google and many other people that you can see on the Forbes list. And I've performed for the Allen and Company Sun Valley Idaho conference where they had Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Oprah Winfrey and Phil Knight from Nike and all these famous people. But the name is really, really important. Each of those, I think, target a specific audience and it resonates with uh, your audience. And I think it's so important how we label ourselves or how we perceive ourselves. It most definitely is. It's, uh, it, it, I mean, it's advertising. You attract different crowds depending on what you're trying to project and what you're putting out there. So, yeah. And it's, it's kind of like how we brand ourselves or how we label ourselves first. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And those labels keep changing. My label, <laughs> <laughs> what I call myself, changes weekly. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Going through midlife crisis, so I keep changing it. I don't know where I'm going. Or you're just growing. <laughs> I think the, 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 it's, it's not about midlife crisis. It's about you finding that cash cow and then you, or finding that low hanging fruit and you're just like, oh, that's there. And we're going to take that safe route. Oh yeah. Uh, do you have any uh, last bits of advice you can give to maybe up and coming kids that want to get into the magic world? Buy as many tickets to magic shows as you can starting with my Airbnb experience or my Eventbrite, if you can catch it because I'm not doing too many of them, but support other um, magicians that are interesting. You know, like I paid this for this lecture, $40 every month I went to this and I supported other performers and they could see that I wanted to support them and I would buy their lecture DVDs and uh, tapes and things like that. So consume as much good magic as possible and then go to magic lectures and maybe penguin lectures or vanishing ink vanishing ink is really great as well because those guys had a scholarship and they they brought my son into like magic really early on because he got the annual scholarship from um vanishing ink's um magi fest oh wow i remember just hanging out in my local magic shop when i was younger and just watching them, watching customers come in and the people behind the counter demonstrating the tricks to everyone. And Which magic shop did you go to? I mean, I grew up in Rockville, Maryland. So God, I don't, remember, that shop? I don't remember the name of it. It's not there anymore though. Okay. I, wish, I wish it was because I know exactly where, where it used to be. Um, Those are the gatekeepers. And now there are no gatekeepers because the gates are flied, wide open and the world is flat. As Thomas Friedman said, the earth is, uh, I think he said, the earth is flat or the earth is it's global like the, the thomas friedman quote where not i'm not a flat earther but I'm about <laughs> the, it, it, everything has gotten very condensed in the information before we we're in the information age and now it's more about information with scaling and the paradigms have kind of converged into from the industrial to information and you have to understand each one of those eras in order to I think thrive or at least survive in this new scary world that we're in. It's very different. It's as, it is very different. Yeah. It's a part of it is sad that we don't, you don't have access to hands-on close by. What's owed is new and what you, you have to, you, you really have to not lose those skills, but at the same time develop those new skills that are uncomfortable for you. And for me, that's speaking. Uh, I really hated the fact 
of my speech patterns because you can tell that I'm all over the place. I'm, my mind is going at a thousand miles per hour. <laughs> and that doesn't always come out to be coherent and slowing down is the biggest thing I, I need to do. And doing the scary world is something, pushing myself to, onto podcasts is something that I really realized that I had to do in order to get to that next chapter, because I'm floating the idea of going out on making more documentaries and doing unscripted reality. Got you. So the, with your family, unscripted reality to your child performers and their dad, the magician. Yeah, that is the idea. And that's hopefully someone will hear that or I get better at telling that story. And someone says, hey, we would love for that family with a 12 year old son who juggles three flaming torches, five balls and picks pockets to uh, we, we follow them for one season. I mean, hopefully you'd watch it. <laughs> I'd watch it. I'm already a fan. I wanna... <laughs> Where can I tune in tomorrow? <laughs> this has been Second Scene with myself, Michael. And thank you, Dan. This has been a lot of fun and gone in many directions. I did not expect it to go. You really have uh, incredible business sense and and um, I could learn so much more from you just chatting with you for hours more. Um, check out Dan Chan at danchanmagic.com. danchanmagic.com. If you want more no-nonsense advice or free one-on-one -on -one mentorship in any area from resume writing to your mental health, send us a contact request at dweebsglobal.org and we will pair you with a mentor. Uh, and we will see you next week for another super interesting guest.